the podcast from Belmont Chapel in Exeter, sharing the story, living the life. For more information, go to belmontchapel.org.uk. Amen. Thanks, Gemma. Thanks. That's so kind of you. Thank you for that prayer. I do uh, really expect and um, anticipate that I will learn things as I hope you will um, through what I share as well. I'm going to plug in um, so I can just get this on the screen. And we're going to look at Romans together. Is that what you were expecting? Are you fed up with it yet? No, no is the right answer. Just, only just starting. Just getting going. Um, and um, yeah, I love this book of Romans. And as, as Gemma just prayed, I, I am still learning new things when I, um, when I look at it uh, regularly myself. By the way, have you seen this? Yeah, yeah. My, uh, my wife's stepfather did that, um, and uh, he's scared of heights, and he had to go up on, up on scaffolding to do it, so I thought you, uh, thought you might recognize that, but um, yeah, he did it, raised some money and did it um, to, uh, as a bit of a witness, so yeah, it's cool, isn't it? Super proud of him. His name is Paul, so if you see, if you see him around, um, give him a pat on the back. Anyway... Um, Anyway, we're in Romans. And um, yeah, always learning new things through this incredible letter of Paul. Um, but I thought I'd just test how much you're learning by giving you a bit of a quiz. Is that okay to start off with? Um, and I will be taking in the answers in your papers. So look lively. Um, is that going to work? Oh, you just need to adjust the... All right. All right, well, here's the quiz anyway. Um, you, some of you may have already seen this, but... Uh, we'll be quick over it, but let's give you an easy one to start with. Who wrote the letter of Romans? Yeah, 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 there's mixed, there's mixed answers to this question, yeah. Most of you are saying Paul, but one or two smart Alex, Clive, um, are saying Tertius, because, and you're absolutely right. At the end of the letter, Paul, Tertius says, I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, also sends you my greetings. So um, you're going you're gonna to get an extra point there. Did anyone else say Tertius? Yeah, a few people. All right. Um, yeah, very good. Nothing to be proud of, knowing those kinds of things. You, anyone who said Tertius, you just need to get out more. Um, but uh, <laughs> but we, we, think, uh, we think the Apostle Paul has some kind of eye condition, maybe a form of glaucoma. We're not sure. But he didn't write his own letters. Even though he's a very educated man, he did that through a scribe or an amanuensis, and Tertius was that scribe. But obviously, every word of Romans is what Paul dictated for Tertius to write down. So in a sense, uh, it's right that in verse 1, Paul, Paul introduces himself as the author, ultimately. And I've, I've used that as a little metaphor for Scripture as a whole. You know, God didn't write the Bible, but he inspired those who did. Um, and every word of it is as he has inspired. All right, how many people lived in Rome at the end of the first century? Hands up for 100,000? Have you already done this quiz? 500,000? No, you haven't. Because <laughs> it's a million is the right answer. Um, a million. Now, now actually, that, that is a really interesting detail because that doesn't sound like a big city in our world. Um, I, I imagine Bristol's bigger than that, isn't it? But, um, but uh, Exeter's not, is it? How big is it? No, no, no. Uh, Exeter. Devon. Um, <laughs> But in the ancient world, Rome completely eclipsed all other cities. In fact, no city in the world reached a million 
after Rome in the first century until London in the 18th century. It's extraordinary how Rome just dominated the ancient world. And so as Paul writes this letter to the church in Rome, there's maybe this many Christians in the city, about 150 to 200, um, and they're in this city that is just full of power and Roman pride and glory and ambition and arrogance, and then somehow this little message about a crucified carpenter from a backwater who the Romans put an end to, suddenly this message begins to spread and even take over um, from under, right under uh, the emperor's nose. So it's an extraordinary letter and it's power. The pen is mightier than the sword. All right, how long to the nearest hour would it take the average reader to finish Romans? One hour, two hours, three hours. The answer is one hour which is less than most people think. So I really want to encourage you, whatever else you're getting out of Romans, I really want to encourage you, if, um, if as we, we think, in the original sort of reception of the letter, it was read in one sitting, uh, why not take a moment, um, well, take an hour actually, to, uh, to read it in one sitting and just allow the big sweep of the story, to, of the narrative of the letter to just wash over you. Don't st- get stuck on the difficult bits. You can always revisit those. Just keep moving through and see how it feels at the end. I, f- I find that something I love doing outdoors especially, and this is what a beautiful place to read Romans tomorrow morning on the beach or whenever it might be. Who delivered the letter to the Roman, of Romans to the church in Rome? Was it Phoebe? Yeah, you, do, you have done some of these things, haven't you? Well done. All right. Yeah, it was Phoebe. Which of these was considered a particular delicacy in ancient Rome? Mouse brain? Flamingo tongue? Ostrich feet, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you wouldn't put it past the Romans, would you? I mean, honestly, the answer is mouse brain. They, um, they sort of bred mice as a sort of delicacy. Um, and uh, both the brain, but also they used to sort of stuff the body uh, and cook it and steam it, and it was a delicacy. Um, yeah, that's, apparently that's why it's called the edible field mouse. Did you know that? The edible field mouse, that's all the way back. But um, that detail aside, I like that question because it just reminds us that the world of the first century Rome is not the same as the world of 21st century Exeter, or wherever it is you're from. So we do have to do a little bit of work to go back to think, what was this text meaning in its original context, where they ate mice? <laughs> uh, we have them as pets, they had them for dinner. So, you know, we're, we're not the same, so our cultures are different, and we need to understand the letter. And actually, it amplifies the meaning of the letter, Uh, when we put it back in its original context. Anyway, that's the quiz over. You'll be relieved to hear. We're going to get into Romans 5 tomorrow, but I actually wanted just to jump in towards the end of the letter. You know, one of those films, um, occasionally, particularly in the sort of 2000s, people made films where they started with a scene that actually proved to be quite near the end of the film, do you remember the end of the story? And then it often loops back, and you don't really understand what's going on in that scene where it starts, but then it loops back to the beginning of the story, makes its way through. And when you get back to that scene, it's like, oh, I get that now. You know those kinds of films? Like, like, Fight Club, yeah. And other films you shouldn't be watching. Um, yeah, no, I'm kidding. Uh, Forrest Gump, another Fight Club and Pulp Fiction and all these films that you definitely shouldn't be watching. So all that to say, all that to say, um, I want to do that with Romans. I want to jump in at Romans 12. And just read a couple of verses, which apparently, and I didn't know this, but Clive told me over dinner that actually as a church, your sort of theme for the year, what was the name, what was the theme? Wholehearted living is the theme for the year. And these couple of verses in Romans 12 are, um, are being thought of as a sort of 
uh, a bit of a base camp from which to think of this year and what God's calling Belmont to. So these familiar verses, I think they're like the hinge upon which the letter turns. Um, And so I'm not just jumping into any random scene. This scene is really important because Paul is turning from the first 11 chapters, which is really nearly all about what God has done, not what we do. And now he's turning, the hinge is turning to how do we respond to what God has done. And isn't that the way the good news of Jesus works? It starts with what God has done for us, not what we can do for him. And only in response to that are we called to live a very different kind of life of wholehearted devotion to Christ. So let me just unpack these couple of verses for a few minutes tonight, and then we'll loop back to Romans 5 um, tomorrow. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Very famous verses, and and maybe that you've read these verses before so many times that you fail to appreciate how ridiculous they would sound out of context. You know, like one of those scenes that doesn't make sense when you first meet it. This doesn't make sense to the way that we are trained to live our lives. What self-respecting person who's been raised in a Western context where living the way you want to live is the absolute goal of everything, what self-respecting person wants to offer their bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to somebody else? It's extraordinary, isn't it? It's a very radical call to a completely different way of living. To be a Christian is not to be similar to everybody else, but to do something different on a Sunday morning. (laughs) To be a Christian is to to live a radically different countercultural kind of life. Notice uh, in terms of how this works, notice that it's a continual thing. You're being asked to be a living sacrifice. Continually, you know, a once-off sacrifice, something that you decide to do at a weekend away as a sort of high-octane moment, and then you go back to how you were. No, no, no. This is saying every day, continually, you are to offer your, your life away. You should surrender the idea that you get to choose how you live your life, and instead you put your life onto an altar as a sacrifice on a daily basis. It's continual, and notice also it's total. It's so demanding. Notice it's offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Back in the ancient world, the gods, the Greek and Roman gods, were not thought to be interested in the physical material world. They were too spiritual for that. Um, And so what you did with your body was of no interest to the gods. It was just simply that you offered the right libations and sacrifices and so forth. But here, the God of the Bible is the God of creation. He's the God who cares about every inch of your life, and he wants the whole thing surrendered and devoted to him. He is not just after your Sundays or your spare time. He is wanting to be invasive to every area of what consists of you. The whole thing offered up to him. Now, when you put it like that, doesn't that sound a bit ridiculous? I mean, you've come away for a break and you're being asked to give everything up. You know, that's the call, though, actually. And it's not just that you... It's not just that you... You are being told to do this. Notice the idea here, I urge you to offer your bodies. The idea here is that you would want to do this, that you're going to reach a place where, and maybe many of us already have, where actually this is what our hearts really want to do. 
Now, how do you get there? How do you get to a place where you want to, on an everyday basis, surrender every inch of your life to somebody else, to the Lord Jesus Christ? That's the sort of that's the goal of Romans, really. I think that's why Paul wrote this letter, is he wants to show these 150 Christians in Rome what truly following Jesus Christ is about. It's about this radical, whole-life devotion to him. I think Paul knows that if 150 or so Christians in this city where all power and glory seems to be with the Roman Empire, if 150 nobodies in terms of society should actually live this way, anything's possible. Don't you think that's true for Exeter as well? If that was true for Rome in the first century, don't you think that's true for Exeter in the 21st century? I mean, I know there are many more Christians in Exeter than are represented here, but imagine if just all of us in the room were to live out this kind of radical devotion. Imagine what could be possible. Imagine what could change when we surrender everything that we are and live as living sacrifices for God. Do you not think that could bring some change? Do you not think anything's possible when God's people actually live out the gospel? It's extraordinary. And I think that's why Paul wrote Romans. And I want to just give a couple of reasons why this actually, notice he says, this is your true and proper worship. The, the, the Greek word is logikos, from which we get our word logical. This is your, he's really saying this is the logical response. When you've seen what God has done for you, the only natural, logical, reasonable way to respond is to give everything away every day to Jesus Christ. And so I want to just unpack two things that I think really are at the heart of Romans. And then this will set us up for the big picture of, of Romans before we get into five, Romans chapter 5 tomorrow. Firstly, that Romans gives this beautiful view of the gospel. Notice Paul says that in verse 1 of, of Romans 12. Therefore, in view of God's mercy. And then secondly, that we have these better values to live by. Briefly, on these two things. Now, uh, I love mountain climbing. That's why I went um, mountain instead of beach. Was that the other option, I think? Yeah. I love beaches as well. So <clears throat> I love the outdoors generally. But I love mountains. And, and um, it's not original to me to think of Romans as a great mountain. Others have said if the New Testament was like the Himalayas, um, Romans would be Mount Everest. And Romans chapter 8 would be like the summit. Um, and I think that's right, actually. I don't think there is a better view. You could argue with me about this. Um, not right now. Let's save it for a coffee break. But um, you could argue with me about this. But I don't think there's a more incredible view of God's great saving purpose than Romans 8 offers. Um, but anyway, my point is, I like to imagine Romans as this great mountain. And perhaps this metaphor has been helping you as you journey through the big picture. And I just wanted to remind you of that bigger story because this is what Paul is saying. He's saying, in view of God's mercy. He's imagining it almost, you can hear the phrase there. He's imagining Romans is almost like a sort of literary landscape that is going to take us to an elevated position where you're going to see something that is so life altering, you cannot go back to how you used to live. I don't know if you've ever had one of those adventures or experiences in the great outdoors where there's something about it that's so extraordinary, what you encounter, what you experience, maybe with other people, that you come away from the adventure, but the adventure's kind of stayed with you a bit as well. You don't go back to just how you used to be. That's the goal of Romans. It's not just a book to study. It's a life-altering adventure to see the view of God's great purpose for our lives and to say, if that's what God has done for me, if that's what God's got for me, I want to live as a, I want to be that living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to him. 
Well, let me, let me remind you of a few of the key phrases in Romans, or at least in Romans 1 to, to 8, that uh, make up this letter. And I guess you've already encountered where we start the letter, because you've already, I think, gone down into what I call the valley of sin. Before Paul takes us up the mountain, he actually starts by taking us down to consider who we are by nature. Apart from God's grace, who really are we as human beings? And the answer is that, well, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Notice that phrase, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now, I don't know how you got on when you talked about sin together, but it's not always a popular word, is it? It's not exactly something that's used a lot in our cultural context. Unless you're a rugby fan. Are there any other rugby fans? Yeah, a few of us? We know about the sin bin, don't we, in rugby? At least rugby is a Christian sport compared to <laughs> that other sport with a round ball that will not be mentioned. There's even several conversions in every rugby match, if you, if you watch closely. So it's absolutely, it's absolutely the Christian sport. But anyway, generally speaking, sin, other than in rugby, sin is not talked about. But you know that concept, even in the rugby match, of someone who has transgressed the way that you were meant to behave, there's a way to play on the pitch. It's not just any old way. There's a way to behave and conduct yourself. And if you transgress that... It's the sin bin. In the same way, Paul understands this world to be created, not accidental. And therefore, there is a way to behave on the pitch. And sin is the breaking of that way of God, that pattern of God in the world. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now, I just, I just said earlier, I hope I learned things. You know, it's interesting how I was just, um, I was just reading back through Romans 5 uh, yesterday as I was preparing a bit for for what we're doing this weekend. And it struck me that in Romans 5, you notice the, in Romans 3.23, there's this phrase, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And then in Romans 5.3, it's always important to note, look for wordplay in Paul's letters because it's very deliberate. But in Romans 5.3, Paul says, and, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. He's deliberately echoing that phrase as if to say, that thing that I started the letter by saying you haven't got a hope of, you've transgressed, we've all fallen short of the glory of God. Now when we understand what Jesus Christ has done, with us, done for us, now that thing that we were shut out from has opened up to us. Now the thing that we by nature could never experience, the glory of God, now we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now we are destined to experience God's greatness and glory because we who were down in the valley of sin have been rescued by Jesus Christ. And we're going to spend uh, tomorrow sitting here, really. This is Romans 5. I imagine it like that moment where you have been rescued or you've been delivered, you've climbed out of the dark, low place, and now you have a view to enjoy. Now you can take in what God has done for you. We'll get there tomorrow. But I just want to spend a few moments reminding us of where that then takes us, from Romans 5 up to the summit of Romans 8. Paul describes... Uh, the, the journey of Christian freedom, you're going to come to that in Romans 6 and 7, that we are no longer slaves to sin. We have been delivered and rescued. We'll touch on this a little bit even tomorrow by, as, as Romans 5 sets that up. And then you come to Romans 8. And as I say, I don't know that there is a more extraordinary view in the whole Bible than Romans 8. Would anyone? Well, no, let's, let's not have that conversation now. Um, but what I like about Romans 8, what, what reminds me of... Um, particularly if you've ever had an opportunity to climb a big mountain, maybe in the Alps or something like this, I often find that when you do finally reach the summit, you've been toiling against the slope 
and your view has been fairly limited to whatever's right in front of you, and you've been through some emotion and effort to get there. But when you come out onto the summit, suddenly you see perspectives that have been previously hidden. And I often find I, you get a bit, well, people call it summit fever, don't they? Where you just get a little bit delirious and you start almost staggering around because suddenly what was just a face of the mountain in front of you is now a sort of 360-degree panorama all around you. And you're sort of looking down, you're like, look, that's where the car's parked down there. Or look over that, that's the Isle of Skye or whatever it is you can see. Not, maybe not from the Alps, but you know what I mean. And... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> can't see the Isle of Skye in Scotland. There's never, never a view in Scotland. But anyway, I think on, Romans, on the summit of Romans 8, Paul does a something of that sort of 360-degree panorama. He looks back to our past, and he says there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's like he, he looks back to the things that... Well, he looks all the, way, all the way back down the mountain, if you like, to where we were. Right, we were right down here, lost and without hope, condemned righteously by God under his judgment. Now Paul says, but now look through Jesus Christ. Now we're, we're here. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Isn't that the joy of the gospel? Doesn't that leave you feeling such a deep sense of gratitude? Because you don't know what lies in my past, and I don't know what lies in your past, but I know this, there's enough to condemn a lot of us. Is there not? And yet my past will never count against me in the future with God. Isn't that that incredible? It's a gift. It's all a gift. He does not treat us as our sins deserve, and he will not pay us back according to our iniquities. Again, in Romans 8, there's a wordplay. Paul says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to say, for what the law was powerless to do, God did by sending his son. He goes on to say he condemned sin in the flesh. Notice the wordplay. There's no condemnation for us because he condemned sin in the flesh of Jesus. Jesus took our condemnation that God might be able to speak over our lives, no condemnation. What a gift. And I don't know about you, but in a world that always struggles with to, get the, to, to understand a perspective on this, there's such an emphasis on victimhood and, and understanding ourselves to be those who deserve better than we actually have. Now listen, there are some genuine victims in this world, and there's a lot of injustice. So I'm not saying in that relative sense that that is unimportant, not at all. But what I'm saying is, in the absolute sense, in the absolute sense... We have not been treated as we deserve. We have been delivered from the things that otherwise would destroy us. Whatever else is going on with Andrew Ollerton, he is always doing better than he deserves. If you knew Andrew Ollerton, you'd know how true that is. And if I knew you, I think I'd know how true that is for you as well. Do you not think, if you're a Christian, you are doing so much better than you deserve? Because you're being treated not according to your sinful nature, but according to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's all a gift. No condemnation in the past. And then in the present, on this summit view, Paul says, we're God's children. We are heirs and co-heirs with Jesus Christ. And then he looks forward into the future and says, all of creation is groaning for the day when this world will be put right. And on Sunday, I want to get to that future hope, that ultimate hope that we have, because hope is a word that keeps recurring in Romans. It's that sense that actually we don't have to wake up in the morning 
trembling with a nervous anxiety, with a sense that there's just a basic doom ahead of us. And I don't know about you, but it feels like there's this ambient level of anxiety that's almost pervasive in our culture. And particularly younger generations are feeling this trembling sense of a forecast of doom. And actually, we have to therefore revisit what the Bible says about hope and its basis. And Romans 5 and Romans 8, hope is one of the words that binds it all together in a vision of a hopeful future. All of this, then, is the, is the view that we have from the summit of Romans 8. We were down here, but by God's grace, we have been rescued and brought up here. And this is what Paul means when he says, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Doesn't that become a little bit more reasonable now to offer the whole of ourselves to the one who gave the whole of himself for us, our Lord Jesus Christ? Amen. That's the beautiful view. Let me just say it very briefly something about the better values. Because in verse 2, Paul goes on to say, so do not conform. Here's our response to this beautiful view. Offer our whole selves to God and do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Paul anticipates here the pressure that we as Christians are under to conform to the way of the world. And it's subtle, but it's very strong in our cultural moment to conform, to allow so easily. Don't you find this as well? So easily, instead of actually allowing Scripture to be our guide for what is true and good, so it's so easy, isn't it, to be so influenced by the voices and the pressure and the culture around us that we drift with the flow rather than actually standing for what's true and living a distinct life. A few years ago, when we lived down in Cornwall, um, I remember on one occasion we went to the beach, um, my wife and I, and it was a, we went with a couple of friends, and it was a really hot day, and uh, we went in the sea. We made a pile of our stuff, like you do when you go to the beach, and then we went in the sea, and we were sort of bodyboarding for probably, I don't know, 45 minutes or so. It was a lovely day. And when we came out, to our horror, somebody had stolen all of our stuff. And I, I know everything. I, remember, I couldn't believe it, actually. I remember thinking to myself, what kind of a person steals socks? You know, they've literally taken everything. I can understand them taking their phone, but they've taken everything. So I went and found the lifeguard, and I said, explain the situation. I said, you need to call the police. I haven't, I haven't even got a phone to call the police. And um, the lifeguard sort of looked at me almost knowingly, and he said, I will call the police in a minute. But before I do, just go and check about 50 yards up the beach that way. And lo and behold, I walked up the beach, and there was all of our stuff. And I still didn't get it, actually. I think I had that sort of ice cream headache. You know, I still didn't quite get it. I remember thinking to myself, what kind of a person moves all of your stuff? You know? <laughs> but of course, our stuff hadn't moved. But have you ever had that experience where you, all along, you just didn't realize that it was you that was moving? You know, because there were strong cross currents. And whilst you're just happily doing whatever you're doing, all the while you're drifting. And I don't know about you, but I feel like this is almost a bit of a parable for the church. I don't mean Belmont, I mean the Western church today. I don't think we realize how strong the currents are and how easy it is just to drift. And Paul says, if Paul sees this happening, he says, do not conform to the pattern of this world. Don't just let the world take you. And here's the reason why. <laughs> because God's way is the best way. You are drifting away from, what does he describe it as? A good, pleasing, and perfect will. 
And the more that we listen to the voices, even who are not Christian voices at the moment, the more we appreciate that the world, the pattern of this world, is not working. (laughs) Would you agree? It is just not working. And even non-Christians, Clive and I were just talking about a book we've both been reading by Louise Perry. I encourage you to read it. It's called The Case Against the Sexual Revolution. She's not a Christian, but she is revisited after living the life the world says is the good, pleasing, and perfect life. She tried that and realized it's bankrupt. And worse than that, it is completely screwing over the most vulnerable people in our society. And here's a non-Christian saying... The way the world sells sex as self-fulfillment with so long as there's consent, you can sleep with whoever you want, it's not working. (laughs) And yet everyone's just drifting along as if that's the way to go. And Paul is saying, no, don't conform to the pattern of this world. This world doesn't know where it's going. The good, pleasing, and perfect will is God's will for our lives. When we climb onto the altar and say, Lord, I want to be a living sacrifice for you. I don't want to repay those who hurt me with more hurt. I want to forgive. I want to be a person who chooses not to hold on to bitterness and hurt, but forgives. When we become those kinds of people, we discover the good, pleasing, and perfect will. When we refuse the culture of sexuality in our world and choose God's way of honoring him with our bodies, we find a good, pleasing, and perfect will. When we live lives not of self-centered absorption, where our bodies belong to Instagram and Starbucks, but where we live lives instead, where our bodies belong to God and we live generous lives, where we actually find that the most joyful way to live... I love this little phrase that I remember someone saying to me a little while ago. He said, have you ever met... Have you ever met an unhappy, generous person? I love that phrase. Because the answer is, no, I don't think I have, actually. Have you? Have you ever met an unhappy? I've met, I've met lots of unhappy, rich people. But I don't think I've ever met an unhappy, generous person. Maybe the good, pleasing, and perfect will really is God's will for our life. Maybe, actually, we'll find our life not in holding on to it, but in giving it away for Jesus Christ and for the good of those around us. This is the call of Romans. This is why the gospel matters. The gospel is not just a message about how we can be saved from our sin. Absolutely, it includes that. The gospel is a message that impacts all areas of our life and transforms us so that we are renewed in the image of Jesus and are transforming the world around us. And I don't know about you, I want to be part of that. I'm not particularly interested in formal religion, but I do want to be part of what God is doing, redeeming this world through those who will truly follow Jesus Christ. And the cost, the cost of living this kind of life is more than worth it in view of God's mercy. I wonder even whether some of us tonight, right at the start of this weekend, just want to rededicate ourselves to this radical call to lay everything before God and say, God, I'm not going to tinker with this Christian thing. I want to live it properly. I want to live it fully. I want to give all that I am to you because you gave all that you are for me. Let me pray. Uh, And maybe you want to join me just in prayer with that in mind as we close.
If you just want to offer yourself freshly to God right at the start of this weekend, why not just reach your hands out in front of you as a sign of just offering your, your life, yourself to Him. Heavenly Father, we, we just want to thank you for the gift that is the life that you've put into our hands, the gift of righteousness and salvation, of not treating us as we deserve, of speaking over our lives, there's no condemnation, of offering us a new future where we will inherit the glory of God. We've all sinned and fallen short of that glory, but through Jesus Christ, we rejoice in the hope of that glory. Thank you that you've turned us round, Lord, and it's all because of what you've done. And tonight, we just want to lift our little lives up to you. At the start of this weekend, offering our whole selves back to you in thankful worship. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.